and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Jensen Williams, who is the public educator at Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis. Anecdotally, we haven't heard a lot about this the last few weeks, but May is Sexual Violence Prevention Month. 31 days meant to encourage everyone to be a part of the solution by having conversations about consent, engaging your workplace in ongoing sexual violence prevention training, challenging and educating those whose actions and beliefs contribute to cycles of violence and showing up to support survivors. A lot of that has been top of mind lately, but not in the context of raising awareness for its own sake. The news has done a very good job of reminding us that this is not always a fair world, especially for women, and I think we really need to talk about all of that. The disturbing news is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. A few weeks ago, an American media outlet published details from a leaked Supreme Court decision that would effectively end the right to illegal abortion in the United States. In 1973, the seminal Roe v. Wade case paved the way in a 7-2 decision, but ever since then, far-right Republicans have dedicated themselves to slowly but surely winding that back, and now they are on the brink of success. The vulnerability of such an important women's right just south of the border has had a striking effect on people here in Canada, where abortion is legal, but access is far from equal. In fact, while Guelph is home to two different massive anti-abortion groups, you can't actually get an abortion in Guelph if you want one. With ads on every other bus, you would think that there's as many abortion clinics in town as microbreweries, but there's not. But it's not just abortion making the news. On the same day that we recorded this episode, the Supreme Court of Canada released a decision saying that criminal defendants in cases involving assault, including sexual assault, can use a defense known as self-induced extreme intoxication, meaning that a defendant can make the case that they were too drunk or high to know how badly they hurt someone. Speaking of being hurt, one can't help but think of the Johnny Depp defamation case brought against his ex-wife Amber Heard, which has seen Heard get sprayed with non-stop streams of social media vitriol in the name of hashtag justice for Johnny, even after a UK court ruled against him in a separate but similar case. And speaking of celebrity trials, former Headley frontman Jacob Hogard is on trial for two counts of sexual assault causing bodily harm involving a child under 16 and a woman. Even a newsie like me needs some help sorting all this out, and fortunately, I know the perfect person to talk to. Jensen Williams joins us on this week's edition of the Guelph Politicast to talk about her own emotional state after this news cycle, why pro-choice Canadians can't rest on their laurels, and why all sides of the abortion debate have been galvanized by the leaked Supreme Court decision. We also talk about the tangled mess of issues around the Depp trial, how the media is covering it in both good ways and bad ways, and the things we still don't understand about how victims act and the ways they're victimized. And finally, we will discuss the absence of any discussion about women's issues on the campaign trail and what any of us can do to create real space for discussion and change when it comes to gender-based violence. And having said that, before diving into the discussion, please keep in mind that some of the topics might be triggering for you, dear listener, so please use discretion. So without further ado, I caught up with Jensen Williams last week via Zoom. So Jensen Williams, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, maybe to begin with, uh, I mean, the news is pretty heavy for people in your line of work right now. So how are you doing? How are you feeling with, with all of this 
this going on? <laughs> I'm doing good. I think, you know, in part there's because you said the saturation and the volume of this type of information. Um, I want to say like, it's not as shocking as it might be to some people just being in this line of work. Like it's not as if I'm desensitized to it. I think I just know the extent of the scope of issues related to gender-based violence. And so to see it in the media, I think it kind of has that shock value for some people uh, in terms of this might be new information for them, but yeah, I'm doing okay. It is just, you know, it's tough to see that time keeps going on. We do make changes. We do have progress, but then we don't in other senses. So uh, it's, you know, constantly a reminder of where we are and just the importance of the work that we're doing and that we need to keep advocating for change. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about it from this perspective. You know, somebody who works at the food bank deals with food insecurity and poverty every single day. So that's not necessarily reflected in the news a lot. So looking at it from your perspective, you deal with topics of domestic violence and sexual violence and harassment and, and all of these things every day. Again, not necessarily reflected in the news every day, but I mean, in terms of in, in what you were sort of implying in your answer, I think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, just that we in the media are probably not as on top of this as maybe we should be given what you see every day. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I would say it's been interesting to see throughout the pandemic and I would say conversations about inequities have come to light and have come to light and continue to in, in new ways, because it's been so obviously shown that there are cracks within the systems. And so I would say we've seen renewed conversations and, you know, looking back to like the Me Too movement, there's growing, you know, social and mobilizations around issues related to gender based violence. And so that tends to, you know, increase in media attention. Sometimes the media attention is just generally informational reporting on trends, reporting on specific incidences. Um, But, you know, we also see the media making use of, say, entertainment. You know, if it's a case that's involving celebrities, um, though we see that that what's the what's the intentionality behind the high levels of reporting for that? Is it telling people about gender based violence, what it is, what they can do about it? Or is it more so kind of for that shock value or that entertainment? Um, And so it's interesting to see kind of, you know, how the media portrays certain issues. Um, whenever they reach out to organizations like us, I'm always kind of of the mind that they're on the right track, trying to actually reach the people who are supporting survivors, those with lived experience, those with expertise on the issues. Um, so I always, you know, I'm mindful about how it's being reported. When I'm thinking about it, it's, well, whose perspective is this? Are they speaking on behalf of survivors or maybe communities that they aren't beha- a part of? Or is it coming from someone with, you know, more direct involvement in that work? So it's really interesting to kind of when you're looking at articles and media to sort of see like what's the perspective and what are the resources being shared? What are the angles there? Is it purely for that kind of, you know, we sometimes will call it trauma porn. So it's Mm. that, you know, you're just sort of highlighting the issues over and over and over again and talking about how, um, you know, just talking about the trauma and its impacts without really looking forward. Well, what are the sort of solutions or where does this lead us? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would say, you know, in that, in that too, sometimes it's just, it's so overwhelming with the information. And so the articles are, you know, the clickbait kind of those uh, inflammatory or, you know, exciting headlines, but what does that really tell people about the actual issue? Can you, I mean, is there, people kind of respond, I mean, clickbait works. I mean, and I, I click on clickbait, uh, I'm sure you do too. We all kind of uh, get caught up in that. But is there a way that 
you know, you can phrase things in a clickbaity way. And, and it, I guess it's kind of a bait and switch where you g- get that attention, but you're presenting the actual meat of the, the meat of the news article itself. You're presenting that in a way that is kind of, shall we say, more informative. Um, I mean, can you, I guess, can you have, can you have it both ways? Can you use, can you be sort of overly um, attention seeking in, in your intentions with like the headline while still being informative? Yeah, I think, you know, looking at all headlines, they're very purposefully crafted. So you will click on them and read the articles and get the information. So in some way, you know, there's more obvious examples than others in terms of clickbait. But I would say every, um, you know, headline is with the intention of we need to have the most dramatic or most shocking or uh, most entertaining or biggest, you know, piece of that in the headline. So even if I'm writing, you know, a media release, I'm thinking of what is going to get them to pick up this media release? What's the most enticing? So to a degree, anyone who's engaging with media is already doing that. And I think it is just a matter of, you know, yeah, like you said, the substance within the article and and what that is informing people about. Is it entertainment or is it education? Mm -hmm. Well, keeping in in mind the things you said about, you know, are are we informing? Are we seeing things from survivors' perspective? I do have a, a list of issues that I, maybe we can go down the list a bit, but I, I think the biggest one of course is the, the leaked Supreme court decision in the United States about um, overturning likely overturning Roe v. Wade um, for people who maybe think, well, this is American news and what effect could it have on Canadian women? It does seem to have really galvanized um, the, the pro-choice community here in Canada. So could you, from your perspective, can you talk about maybe why that has hit such a note, even though it's it, it affects Americans and doesn't necessarily affect Canadians? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we see that um, in North America, Canadian po- political trends very closely follow American political trends. These two are inextricably linked. Even when we look at the ways in which Canadians consume American news, for example, you know, we live in kind of this global news society and this information system. And so a lot of the times, you know, I think, there is this idea that Canadians have some sort of supremacy over Americans mm-hmm. um, with this idea that, oh, well, we would never do that. Even when we look at, you know, things like anti-Black racism or anti-Indigenous racism, it's to say, oh, well, they're doing it worse. So we're not as bad. There's this kind of always comparison of, um, you know, we're gold, they're silver. And so looking at, you know, the um, <laughs> the recent, you know, decision and, and how this has galvanized the pro-choice community is I think for a lot of folks are realizing that, abortion rights aren't actually as codified in Canadian law as a lot of us maybe think they are or would like them to be. While we do have, you know, the Supreme Court precedents, we actually don't have legislation protecting the right to abortion in Canada, which is why we're seeing what's happening in Withrow, Vane and America be so scary because there's not that legislation to essentially back it up. And when we're looking at, you know, abortion access in Canada per se is that it's not as accessible as folks think it is. Mm-hmm. There's been, you know, while this issue is coming out, there's come to light, you know, just how little um, service providers are able to do, you know, surgical abortions. And we've seen the rise of abortion pills being used. Uh, but, you know, even in, I would think, Ontario, I think there's only 11 places who do surgical abortions. And you're looking at the biggest province in the country. Looking at out east in New Brunswick, for example, there is no abortion providers. So when we think of, you know, oh, this is really going to change accessibility, we're also thinking that those who might be coming from America might be trying to access, you know, abortions in Canada in a system that's already not as accessible to people who are already living here. And so 
I think, you know, we constantly see um, other places in the world essentially try something out politically. And then, you know, it kind of also emboldens, say, the pro-life community to say, you know, oh, well, this happened here. So look at the success of that type of movement. And so I would say, while it's galvanized, you know, the support of a lot of troops pro-choicers, it's also galvanized the support of a lot of, of pro-lifers, or as I would prefer to call them, anti-choicers. And so I think, you know, we're seeing that it's recognizing that this inherent right that we thought that we would always have, because, you know, we're a country that we think is so different, it's not as cut and dry or as easily accessible uh, as that, I think, as, as folks think. So it will have wide-reaching implications because it, you know, sort of sets the standard and a precedent. And, you know, we do have, you know, we call the, the president of the United States, he's seen as the world's leader in right. this. So I would say, you know, we're looking, we're always looking at, as a, as a westernized world, we're always looking at what is North America and particularly what is the United States doing? Because mm -hmm. they're setting a precedent for how, you know, people have rights in other areas of the world. And to your point about the anti-abortion movement, uh, there were a lot of people the other day on Parliament Hill, the, the March for Life, and uh, there were some conservative politicians who came out, too. So uh, I think people are sort of seeing that um, that, uh, I guess, political enthusiasm about this can go two ways. But the other thing to point out locally, too, is that there are two pretty major anti-abortion groups that are based in Guelph, too. Mm -hmm. So it's a local story in more, perhaps more than we might expect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, with a lot of things, it's, it's, people think, oh, it's a vocal minority. But the more and more that we see any sort of gains for this movement, the more and more people feel emboldened to have that be, be more vocal about it and to realize that it's actually a larger portion of the population than we might think. They just didn't really necessarily feel comfortable sharing those views because they weren't accepted in such a widespread way. Right. And, and to address the, the media question of this, too, um, I, I was somewhat heartened by some of the media coverage that of, of the fact that, as you were saying, abortion access in is, isn't as accessible as we might think it is. And you probably aren't aware of that unless you are a pregnant person seeking an abortion. So that's sure. that's I mean, making people aware of that, I think, has been uh, a if you can have an upside to this news is, is definitely been a positive upside. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think for a lot of friends, like people and even friends reaching out to me, I think people are very confused as to what this means. So I do think there needs to be, you know, greater clarity as it comes out of what does this actually mean for Americans, for Canadians, uh, for, you know, the pro-choice movement in general and the access to abortion abortion worldwide. What does this sort of set? So I think, you know, we've heard, you know, the, the again, the headlines is, reversal leak decision reversal of roe versus wade well what does that actually mean i think I, I think that we really need to be a bit more clear in the in the media of, of the implications of that while they might still be you know we're figuring that out and they're unfolding um i think that's part of the fear is just the uncertainty mm -hmm. takes you right back to pandemic coverage um, oh gosh <laughs> the fear is that like the uncertain the, the the fear is uncertainty not nec not it's not necessarily fear of the thing it's the fear of not knowing what's going to happen next with the thing um keeping to canada for a sec and this is kind of breaking news as we're recording but the, the, the supreme court of canada announced uh in a decision that and i'm going to quote it self-induced extreme intoxication is uh a, a 
the Supreme Court has said that that is a viable defense, um, even when it comes to serious violent crime like murder and sexual assault. Um, I can't imagine you think that's good news. Yeah, I mean, it's been always kind of one of the protected grounds when, it, when we look at sexual violence is to say, you know, if you are intoxicated, that, that that can't be used as an excuse to say, well, I didn't know that that person didn't consent or because I was drunk, I didn't ask. So it's interesting because, you know, although this decision has come out, people still might, you know, not necessarily apply that as precedent. Um, so when we were talking about, you know, the legalities around, for example, sexual assault, it still kind of says, you know, when we're looking at the law that that is not a legal defense. And so it'll be interesting to see kind of how this goes forward, because I know in other cases, it's been, you know, individuals who have taken psychedelics and then have maybe, you know, committed uh, violent crimes um, to say kind of, well, you chose to do this. And so your actions that you said, um, your actions that were as a result of this um, aren't necessarily your fault because you're an altered state of mind. Um, but, you know, the, the way in which the legal system handles not just sexual violence, but gender-based violence in general, is that they're always trying to find, I think, ways to continue to blame the victims for what happened, um, to, you know, to, to take the onus outside of the people who, who cause harm for causing harm and seeing that. So I think we're always seeing that there's always trying to be loopholes used to not hold people accountable to, for their actions. And so it'll be interesting to see kind of how this plays out and the context in which it's used because the context of what this decision could be used in might not necessarily be, they still might have protected grounds. And I'm, that's why I'm hoping to see for right. specific cases related to sexual assault. That's sort of been the precedent that's been set. Um, but again, the precedents, it applies differently to, to each legal case. So I'm, I'm really hoping that they're not continuing and to find that loophole and to utilize that for situations, say of sexual assault. Uh, but you never know. Well, I mean, it, one of the things I thought of was just, you know, if you are super drunk, it's now a defense if you are doing the crime. But um, being drunk has never been um, or I, I get, I'm trying to be careful the way I phrase this, but uh, victims have been assaulted while drunk and mm -hmm. have been told, well, if you were not drunk, this would not if, if you had not been drinking or had not been doing substances or whatever, this would not have happened to you. Yeah, the relationship between intoxication and, and sexual violence is very, very nuanced and very interesting. But you're exactly right. When those who are assaulted are intoxicated um, during their assault, they're always seen as, well, your memory's not clear. Or how do you know you didn't say yes? It's used against them. Whereas with intoxication for people who cause harm or related to sexual assault, it's seen as an excuse. Right. So it's, it's very, you're very right in terms of that. That's two sides of a coin and it's a very different coin in terms of how it's used. And I think it just stems from a lack of understanding about consent in general. So, I mean, there's been a lot of work on that front, right. To try and help people understand consent, understand how sexual violence happens. Um, does this Supreme court decision I mean, you, you said it's going to depend on context, but I mean, just sort of generally, doesn't this, isn't this kind of a step back after all these years of trying to change the, the predominant legal narrative around sexual assault cases? Yeah. And there's also been an, an interesting, you know, I would say like 
well, there's always kind of an uptick in, in the, the interest and the advocacy around these things. While there's organizations like us who are consistently doing it, there are certain things that bring it to light that sort of make it, you know, a, a, hot, a hotter topic. And so we've recently seen, you know, an example in Ontario advocating for a bill called Kira's Law to help make mandatory education for judges around domestic violence in the family court system. And so now we're starting to see individuals and groups have that advocacy to say, you need that education in that context because, you know, the, the application of the law, it seems is very different because it's seen as, you know, that these factual things that are universal and it's a different way of reasoning and thinking than say people outside of the legal system are used to sort of thinking through those thought process. So it's informing, you know, through that education, how can when you're ap applying the law and utilizing, you know, the legal reasoning behind things, have the understanding of what trauma is and what consent is and what that looks like and the myths around, um, you know, for survivors and the negative stereotypes um, and the victim blaming. I think that education specifically for those within the legal system has not been something for a long time that's really been prioritized um, because it seemed that, you know, the law is as it stands, that's the education, all the information is already there. But, you know, we're all individuals, we all bring our own biases. And so it's trying to help people bring more attention to some of those unconscious biases. And I think that that's a really key step that we need to continue to advocate for in the education is education specifically for legal professionals. Because while, you know, a lot of the education that's been focused on has been, you know, focused on school-based or youth-based prevention programs, you know, education for workplaces, you know, recognizing that these are, you know, people who are applying the law in a sense and, and serving survivors in a lot of different ways. And so, I think while there has been and continues to be a lot of advocacy, we're seeing a renewed need for the advocacy specifically for judges and legal professionals. What was the status of Kira's law before the parliament, before the legislature dissolved? Do you know? Off the uh, top of your past head? second reading. Okay. So it was, it was in committee and might've come back, um, but it, everything has to start again from scratch now, unfortunately. Yeah. That seems like a good segue to talk about issues uh, around, you know, uh, you know, protecting women, protecting LGBTQ plus people, um, you know, issues of femicide, sexual violence, all of which should theoretically be a part of uh, an election campaign at, at the provincial level. I haven't heard a lot about it, though, have you? No, not necessarily. I think, you know, it's not one of those things that's going to be a big party platform point is to say we're going to do more to support specifically gender-based violence organizations. But I think what's interesting and when how I see, because we know that the issues related to gender-based violence are so deeply connected to other social inequities. Um, and so it's interesting to think about, you know, when people say, well, why can't individuals leave abusive relationships? A lot of the time there's an economic dependency there and there's a lack of, say, affordable housing. And so when we're talking about, you know, okay, which parties are talking about affordable housing, because that could be a way in which we're addressing issues related to gender-based violence. Um, same thing with individuals who are talking about raising or uh, minimum wage, or, you know, eliminating the costs of uh, post-secondary education or reducing those costs in any way. When you're thinking about, you know, access to opportunities that could help not just level and create gender equality, but greater social equity, um, 
and in reducing those barriers, those are all things that are going to help to prevent gender-based violence, whether we see it directly or indirectly, because, you know, we know that the root causes of gender-based violence are, um, you know, things like racism, colonization, lack of economic opportunities for women, and so forth. Um, and so when we're, you know, seeing parties investing in even supports like harm reduction, um, or programs specifically like social community programs, food insecurity, all of those things can not just help support current survivors in navigating supports, but also in helping to, to prevent violence, for sure. So, you know, we've even seen um, talking about education and curriculum, that's always something that tends to come up. Um, you know, we're looking at things like, you know, yeah, keep in consent-based education, keep in education about gender identity. These are all things that I think could be, be really helpful in terms of the long one for prevention. So we never tend to see it, you know, be that, that hot election topic per se, because, you know, people hear gender-based violence and they, they just want to stop there. They don't necessarily <laughs> want to hear more about it because it is, it's a heavy topic. And so, but I think, you know, the, the values in that and looking at what are social programs that can help to reduce inequities and barriers for folks and being able to succeed in, in any elements of life. Um, those are all things that can help together, you know, prevent and stop gender-based violence. It's, it's interesting to hear it. You talk about it because what it seems to me is that it's not something necessarily you run on um, in, in terms of like an issue and maybe that's wrong, but on the other hand, um, this is kind of the the immediate advocacy work. Like, it, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it's probably more valuable for people like you to hit the ground running on June 3rd, the day after the election, and start to push whoever the new government is to to explore these things that we need, as opposed to trying to make it a a partisan issue on the campaign trail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, because you know it is dedicated to once you have your budget and, you know, budgets are always about priority priorities. Um, looking to say, you know, what is the commitment there to increase the funding for, you know, these types of programs and to have, you know, it not be, I think that's the thing about funding too, is it's always so competitive. <laughs> and so that leads to like significant resource gaps. And so it is about, you know, I think that consistent advocacy, whether it's an election or not, trying to make sure that that advocacy is happening and continuing to be a priority because, well, you know, we do have advancements and we compare to say, oh, well, we're so much better than we were 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, these issues are still happening. And so we need to continue to n- not just wait for when there is an opportunity that brings about significant media attention and brings our attention back to it, it needs to consistently be a part of, you know, the work that we're doing. Speaking of media attention, I, kind of purposely save these two things for the last because they are kind of salacious or the least the way they've been covered is salacious but we have two like kind of big trials going on right now one in canada with uh, jacob jacob hogarth uh, on trial for for sexual assault and then you have the defamation case in virginia involving johnny depp and his ex-wife amber heard looking at it from maybe a glass half full perspective um appreciating that there, there's uncommon attention on this because there are celebrities involved, mm. but even the way it's being covered in the media right now, um, is there a positive impact in terms of raising awareness to, to you know, the, the issues that, that these trials are essentially about? Uh, 
you know, I'm a, I try to be a glass half full silver linings kind of person. Um, I would say and it's interesting. I worked on a research project a few years ago at the University of Guelph where they were looking at high profile cases of sexual violence and what does that, does it educate folks about the legal system and the issues there or, or is it for entertainment? And the results of that initial study was through Kate Puddister and Tamara Small was they kind of found that overwhelmingly it adds more entertainment value than anything else. Um, so you're drawing people in kind of with those um, that entertainment and that information. And while I think, you know, specifically with the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial, I think for folks, what I'm seeing, it has raised additional conversations about is a men being, um, experiencing violence as well. Um, as well as the, as emotional abuse. Cause I think, you know, when folks think of abuse, you know, their head automatically kind of goes to the physical. And I think what we're really getting into with the details of that case in particular is just how commonplace and, and, you know, how violent emotional abuse actually can be. And, you know, that there are situations in which, you know, there is maybe mutual abuse going on and how individuals maybe react to trauma. Um, I think, you know, seeing that in, in different ways. So, you know, it might have that element, I think, of pe- people of raising awareness. From what I've seen, even from people resharing stuff, uh, I've seen a lot of folks, you know, kind of maybe uh, indicate that they've become more aware about how um, violence impacts, in particular, like men in particular. So, mm. but then again, it always kind of becomes a, well, they're, they're taking sides and uh, it's it's difficult. I'm saying this kind of from my own subjective opinion as an observer of of the trials and everything going on but you know again I think it's these topics they come up they seem a little trendy for a while and then we kind of forget that they happen or we stop talking about them and right. so I think you know for for some cases it's looking too about just how um criticized though individuals who bring forward claims are because it's not always just about the individuals who are being accused of anything it's also about the character the credibility um, of the people who have brought forward those claims you know and I'm looking at kind of the coverage particularly of the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial and a lot of the coverage and it's like just memes and jokes and almost kind of making a mockery of it a little bit Uh, and in particular I've seen maybe this is just you know my media sphere and and my bubble but I've seen a lot of the I would say the negative like personal attacks about Amber Heard um and so seeing kind of that that gendered difference as well in in terms of the coverage I don't know if you've noticed that as well but I think from the joking kind of perspective it seems to be she's sort of the butt of the joke from what I've seen uh I noticed um (laughs) and I think but I mean that's kind of the algorithms talking isn't it where if you like read something that talks about it from talks about that case in particular from the legal perspective or from gender politics perspective. Like I I was reading a Vox piece that, you know, was essentially explaining how um, Amber Heard is sort of being attacked because she didn't act like a quote unquote typical victim because she might've fought back. And it, 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 there's kind of an education perspective that there that, you know, there is no such thing as a typical victim, just like there's no such thing as a typical abuser. Um, but I might read that and my computer goes, oh, you're interested in this topic. Here's a bunch of other things. And it includes the good, the bad, the ugly and the super ugly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. The, definitely, you know, the, the ideal victim. I think that that is a narrative that is 
constant in any reporting of gender-based violence-related trials. Uh, because again, you know, they're, they're, they're looking at the credibility and the character of that person who has brought forward those claims. And if it's not in a way in which we thought they were supposed to act or what they were supposed to do, that, you know, makes them less and less credible. Right. Um, and, you know, it's interesting too, being, uh, uh, you're also, you're not just in the, co- the, the court of law, you're also in the court of public opinion at that point. So I think it's interesting to see, you know, how that influences folks. And even I think, whether it be no matter what perspective you're talking about the case from, it is creating, because it's something that's going on in pop culture, interpersonal conversations about issues related to gender-based violence. And that I do think in some degree is positive because this is not something that comes up in the day-to-day conversations. Like I was saying, people hear gender-based violence and they want to look the other way. And so for it to kind of make its way into the mainstream, despite the fact that I wish it had no place in that, um, I think it does create an opportunity to be like, oh, let's look at this a little bit and let's talk about it. And what's your opinion? What do you think? You know, just kind of seeing and then having those opportunities if someone is perpetuating, you know, myths or things about the ideal victim to kind of question that or use that as an opportunity to have a little bit of, of education. At the same time, though, for people who kind of want to have that discussion, I guess what I would call a reasonable, rational discussion, um, you know, they kind of get swept up in, in the negativity of, of all this, too. And, and I would agree that it, that comes particularly from the people who are supporting Johnny Depp. One of the things I've noted uh, in sort of reading the comments on these stories and things, a lot of it is coming from people and granted the anonymity of the internet being what it is, I, I'm reading into it that they are men, but who, men who are mad at a particular instance in their life where, mm. you know, whether it's an argument with an ex-girlfriend or something a little bit more serious than that, they, are, they have kind of like attached themselves to this trial. And in a sense, quote unquote, hashtag justice for Johnny is not just about, you know, Johnny Depp, vindicating himself it's about them vindicating themselves against whatever woman they think has wronged them and implicit in that is they don't just want to see johnny depp to win they want to burn amber heard to the ground Mm -hmm. and that just there's something about that that is at once kind of i mean the psychologically it's understandable even if like sort of the the message behind it is utterly repugnant yeah Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of folks who may not intentionally want to be leaders of something or embolden others to think it's the same thing. But we've seen a lot of this with, say, like involuntary celibates as well um, and attaching themselves and finding kind of their heroes um, and, you know, finding those moments where they're like, well, see, this person is doing this and this just confirms everything that we've believed. And so we'll always kind of, you know, find that people are trying to see themselves in the narrative to try to also prove a point, you know, with this trial, we've kind of seen, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, opinions and thoughts to say that, you know, Amber Heard is, is lying, or it was actually like her, that was part of the problem. And I'm not coming at this sort of, I have no sides, I have no real, like, you know, this is what happened, because I'm right. involved in the situation. Uh, but, you know, then if the case, you know, turns out to prove that, you know, the defamation suit, like, it's not there, there's no grounds for it, then I think what people are going to say is, well, see, this is what we've always thought, women can't be trusted, they lie. Um, And so, you know, we're going to see, I think it'll be interesting to see as the case unfolds and what the impacts will be from whatever is decided. 
and it, the people could also read the reverse into it, where if, if the, the court finds in favor of Amber Heard that um, the system is rigged uh, against men. Yes. Um, and I mean, that, that kind of opens another can of toxicity, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I guess then the question at, <laughs> at the end of all of this is, you know, um, like what can we do in our, our daily lives? I mean, is it, you're probably not going to reach people who are angry about Johnny Depp and like reach them in a rational way by offering sort of these countervalences. You're not going to, you know, necessarily make new friends wading into some of these debates because people are so entrenched. But I, I think if we're, if we're working towards a better more equitable, safer world, I guess, you know, given how inundated we are with all this, all this news happening right now, I guess, like, what, what, what would be a good way to sort of go about our, our day and, and, and try our best to sort of achieve that more, let's say, utopian vision? <laughs> well, that's the million dollar question. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, if we're talking particularly about the ways in which we might, because we've talked a lot about media and the news. And so the ways in which we consume media and how that informs our opinion and how we move forward is to just think about when we've read an article and that it's led to us to come to some sort of conclusion. Think about, okay, where does that come from? Because that can help maybe investigate, you know, do we have any unconscious biases? You know, are we um, leaning into kind of any of those, those myths or those stereotypes? So I think just trying to have like that self-awareness of, you know, if we've read something or we've consumed something that's led us to come to a conclusion, try to just investigate what information we've gathered that has led us to that conclusion. You know, what are the facts behind that? Um, try to identify any biases there. And then, you know, when we're having maybe those conversations about it and to think, you know, how can we investigate how others have come to those conclusions? Because it can be, you know, there's... Um, times and places and individuals where like you said you just might not get through to and and to not take that personally but to at least understand kind of where you're coming from with your thought process and you know can you have those opportunities if there are any to help to um you know just raise awareness with others and and educate them and most importantly you know if there are um, regardless of of who it's about if there are that kind of that perpetuation of that notion of the ideal victim or victim blaming comments or ideas that really kind of put us back um how can we try to combat that in other ways and so you know i think just really investigating sort of why we think what we think about things and then what are what opportunities do we have to share those with others if might not be necessarily uh, to people who strongly disagree with us but even to people who maybe disagree a little bit or how can we just have kind of open conversations about it because I think you know the big thing is that we like I said we don't really talk about these things enough typically just when something bad has already happened and right. so to also frame it in the sense of let's just not continue to be reactive let's try to be preventative and how we can try to, you know, be more preventative is, you know, like I was saying, youth-based education programs, let's talk more about consent and healthy relationships and different types of violence and what that looks like and how to identify warning signs and what are the supports in your community should you be experiencing this. Um, You know, let's also invest in, you know, social programs that promote um, 
food security and affordable housing and harm reduction supports? Um, how can we, you know, give back to organizations that su are supporting survivors, those frontline organizations like Wellpoint Women in Crisis? Um, so I think it's looking at, you know, if you're looking at what what can I do about this, you're not really sure where to start. Start locally. You know, start mm. within maybe your own workplace to say, okay, what's my workplace doing about this? You know, do we have decent policies? Is there a committee that maybe needs to discuss these things? Is there a way that we can honor, you know, right now it's May, it's Sexual Violence Prevention Month. Is there something we can do about that? What kind of training is maybe available in the community? What organizations provide that? Um, you know, attend an event. Uh, as I mentioned, Sexual Violence Prevention Month right now. Um, find out what events might be going on in your community. We're having one at Riverside Park on May 27th uh, from 12 to 2 p.m. It's going to be about celebrating survivorship. So really the resilience and strength of survivors, but also the importance of community and coming together um, to have kind of group and collective solutions to, to ending violence. So just finding, you know, who are those organizations or those allies in your community, at your workplace, in your organizations, your friends, who can be part of this with you, you know, look at the work that's already being done. How can you support and empower that? And if it's something that doesn't already exist, who can maybe help you get that started? So I think, you know, start small, set goals for yourself. And those goals could even be ones about learning and reflection. You know, what what are some knowledge gaps that maybe I have? Um, what do I want to learn more about? What are some books, podcasts, resources that I can maybe check out on my own time? So I think that constant learning and reflection is always going to need to be there. But if you're looking for kind of some more actionable allyship and some of those pieces, um, look at what's already going on and, you know, look around you and see if there any opportunity for you to take a more active role. You know, in a way I came into this, looking for some direction given all the news. And then we end with about 20, 2,700 different directions, <laughs> but, but that's why we come to you, Jensen. Oh, thanks, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We will leave it there. So Jensen Williams, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Adam. And once again, that was Jensen Williams. You can learn all about the great and important things that Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis does by visiting their website at gwwomenincrisis.org. If you are in immediate need of support, you can also call the Women in Crisis 24-Hour Helpline at 519-836-5710 or toll-free at 1-800-265-7233. Also, if you'd like to show some in-person support for people this month, this Sexual Violence Prevention Month, then you can check out the Celebrations of Survivorship, an Afternoon of Solidarity Against Sexual Violence, which is being hosted by Women in Crisis this coming Friday from 12 to 2 p.m. at the Red Pavilion in Riverside Park. And since there's still an election going on, if you're interested in hearing from the candidates, we are hosting as many of the Guelph candidates as are willing to come on on Open Sources Guelph, and we will have a new episode tomorrow, Thursday, at 5 p.m. on CFRU, and then you can download it the next Monday on the Guelph Politicast channel, which is what you're listening to these very words on right now. And there may even be an additional edition, additional edition, so to speak, of the Wellington Halton Hills Politicast this coming Saturday. Stay tuned for that. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, out of the University of Guelph. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. 
You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. Follow me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, and you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where there will be a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we'll see you next time.